What's going on, guys? You got Evan from Middle Tech Podcast here. This is a really exciting episode because the company that uh, we're interviewing, Dalton and Erica, the founders, and they're literally saving lives uh, with their product and, and their solution to a major problem in the world, which is organ donations and the supply chain around that. They're really bringing a lot of great communication tools um, to that space. And so we're really going to walk through what that product is and how they're you know, solving the problem. And one of the things that really stands out about this episode is their personal connection to the problem. And to me, one of the most important things as an entrepreneur is to have that personal connection. It's not just to start a company to make money. It's really to solve a major problem that you care about. Because when things get tough, you have to fall back on that. Um, and that's going to be one of the big guiding lights of a company. So um, that's one thing that you'll see stands out in this episode is their personal connection and passion about this problem. And one thing we're trying to do a lot more this year is provide you guys major learnings that you can take away from the episode. Um, and in this episode, we asked them, you know, what, what's the biggest thing you've learned? And what they really talk about is the human side of business. So everybody gets kind of caught up in the financial side, in the idea, the engineering, the technology. And we love to talk about technology, but at the end of the day, what builds a company is your ability to connect with humans, be emotionally intelligent, and navigate tough times through listening uh, and, again, that, that emotional intelligence to be able to get through um, those times. So they have some amazing ways to, to learn about that emotional intelligence because it's not traditionally taught in school. Um, and they have some, some ways that they've applied it. So this is a really great episode to listen to for multiple reasons. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it. going on guys you got evan from middle tech we've got logan in here early morning for us uh, this is the, probably the earliest episode we've done normally we don't do in the morning but this is great i'm like i like getting up in the morning and doing things early so uh, we've got dalton and eric in here from OmniLife, so we're looking forward to having them on uh, logan why don't you get into how we uh, how we know them yeah so i know eric the best probably they're uh, part of the awesome Inc. community now they've got i think the coolest office in the place uh, we just renovated this new part. We've been talking about it a lot. It's the part we've got the podcast studio in. Uh, they got a nice corner office with big windows, and they they filled it up with plants, which mm -hmm. I think is just unique and cool. It's really it's really green and a place you want to hang out. And you guys have quickly become part of this community. I know we talked a little bit about that yesterday. You guys are playing ping pong with us and joining family lunches and all that good stuff. So we're we're happy to have you here. Yeah, and you guys aren't your company's not originally from here, right? No. Yeah, you guys relocated here. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. So before we get into any of that, why don't we go through your backgrounds briefly? So if you guys want to start with where you're from, education, things like that, one of you guys can go ahead and lead that off. I'll start. Yeah. So um, my name is Dalton Shaw. I'm born and raised in Oskaloosa, Iowa, small small town community in southeast Iowa. Uh, went to school at University of Iowa, which was the next step of a dream that I've been working on since I was a kid to play football there. And so I went there and played football for just a year and a half until a, a motorcycle accident changed everything. And so um, went there um, for school-wise, uh, human physiology, pre-med, wanted to go to medical school, um, uh, had an interest in sports medicine and orthopedics eventually. Um, and kind of over the course of 
going through college and just kind of figuring out myself and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be along with an acceleration event like an accident that kind of changes things. Um, I found myself exploring a lot of different opportunities, got into um, some med tech internships and really liked the intersection of technology, medicine, and business. Um, kind of still kept the entrepreneurial certificate or the uh, um, pre-med, but got an entrepreneurial certificate and that was through events like that, entrepreneurial events that I met Eric, and we started uh, bouncing around an idea. So, yeah, well, we'll get to the origin of that. And then sure. Eric, yeah. Yeah, so I, I grew up in central Iowa, a little town called Ames, uh, home of the Iowa State Cyclones. Um, lived there through grade school. When I graduated, I wanted to go to the big city in eastern Iowa and go to the University of Iowa for biomedical engineering. So I got out of my hometown uh, to the dismay of some of my... Um, local friends but um have been uh continuing to stay in touch with them and and it's uh, just a fun rivalry now between iowa and iowa state um so when i'm in uh my undergrad uh pursuing biomedical engineering i actually had a few um, entrepreneurial ideas uh, with biomedical devices primarily things that had to do with um, imaging and image recognition um, software specifically for the eye uh, and that led me to research labs, um, being a teaching assistant to many of the computer programming classes there, especially for like medical imaging analysis, things like that. Um, led me to a, an internship um, at IDX, which is one of the first um, FDA-approved um, totally automated diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy. It's out of the University of Iowa. I worked with them for a year and... It was an early stage company that was actually the CEO was Gary Siemens and the Siemens building is the engineering school building. So it was really cool to work for hmm. the person coming out of, of that. And that was really inspirational. And as Dalton alluded to the entrepreneurial certificate, I also pursued that in my uh, last year as an undergraduate student. Um, and that's where we kind of met and we bounced ideas off each other and um, as you learn more about Dalton, too, you'll know he's just teeming with ideas. So we had lots to talk about, lots of ideas um, to pursue there, and, and that kind of brought us together. Yeah. You guys got brought together, and you guys came up with the idea of OmniLife. Um, talk quickly about the idea of OmniLife, and then I want to get into kind of the things that, that drove the idea, because you both have really great personal experiences that are part of the story. So just jump into the idea of OmniLife and then the product and, and solution you guys are solving. Sure. Well, it's evolved a lot, you know, it's a, our changing, changing of our name as a company has changed three times. And I think that's pretty, uh, what's well, it's relevant with the changes that we've made as a business or, um, so we started off as organizer and we were the organizers, <laughs> we were organizing yeah. organs. Yeah. Makes sense. And, um, <clears throat> and then we went through a period of health tech solutions where we were kind of exploring multiple channel and market opportunities, and now we're OmniLife. And I think um, when we first started the company, it was all about allowing a surgeon, um, somebody that was making a decision on an organ offer, to be able to pull in the right donor characteristics and then use both the kind of the comp the, 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 the combination of real-time accessibility to donor information that's hard to get, plus... Uh, decision support algorithms that allowed them to make better decisions on those organ on those organ offers and it was kind of the combination of both those that we had a, a noticeable a, i guess a noticeable interest from the market and, an, and a nice little niche 
and and then we explored it's a pretty small beachhead of the market just focusing on that one problem we realized with working with those first set of customers that the problem was a lot bigger um and we transitioned and and um really started to focus on the patient side so um that hence omni life we wanted to really try to bring in all the different data and all the different things going around the entire transplant care continuum, all the different constituents, the different parties, the different clinics, the different profession, uh, clinical professionals, um, and bring in everybody into a, a single place where they can communicate, coordinate, and, and a goal of maximizing transplant and saving as many lives as possible. So yeah. that's a... Uh, so the problem is that the supply chain around organs is fragmented <clears throat> and not connected. You guys are Coming along, S- trying to connect. Streamlining both sides. Yeah, started really focused on supply and trying to reduce organ waste. Yep. So 54% of donated organs aren't getting transplanted. Uh, we did a lot of research, and our first NIH grant was really around, um, you know, identifying the preventable waste there and then focusing on how we can make the biggest impact uh, and streamlining utilization. Yeah. And now we've seen that there's an excess uh, accessibility to transplant issue on the demand side, so patients needing organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we've expanded some of our, our learnings from how to make more organs available to how do we get more patients um, listed for transplant and yeah. successfully transplant. Because there's like 120,000 people on the wait list, and then yep. every day, you know, two, 22 people die. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah, and that's just because of inefficiencies. Yeah, and, and it, when you think about economically how organ failure impacts our country it's out of the medicare medicaid budget it's one out of every five dollars they spend on health care um or about 42 billion dollars on end-stage renal disease alone um so if we if you look at um end-stage renal disease treatment and and everything that goes on with uh, kidney failure it's a huge impact economically as well it's a huge problem um for for our healthcare system and that's just, uh, although kidney is definitely the biggest, there, there's other organs, too, not included in that number. Yeah. So it is a really big problem in that regard as well. So I'd like to kind of walk through just a brief example of what the supply chain might look like. So somebody has been in a you know, fatal car accident. They might have an organ that is still available and ready to use for somebody that needs it. Somebody figures out they need an organ. Walk through how you guys are connecting this match? Sure. So uh, we don't determine who gets an organ. Okay. And it's really important to, to mention. We've, there's a system called uh, UNOS, United Network for Organ Sharing, that does a one-to-many match based on an algorithm that they, that they control. Um, it's the output of that and how they go about calling all the different patients that could be a potential match for that organ that's really inefficient. That's when we step in. Okay. Um, but, the, yeah, so let's say somebody gets in a, in a, in a motor vehicle accident and they're rushed to the local uh, level one, level two trauma center. Um, Unfortunately, they're pronounced deceased. The family's called. The family comes in and agrees and authorizes uh, for donation. At that point, a local government kind of, it's a organ procurement organization. There's 58 of them across the country and they have responsibility for certain regions to procure um, organs, donated organs. Um, and they come on site, take care of the, the now donor as if they were still a patient and get those organs healthy and then post them, if you will, onto, uh, the national allocation system, UNOS. And then there's a 
you know, spits out a, okay, this kidney could go to these potential thousand patients. And then there's a one by one calling process currently emails, faxes, et cetera, that happen after that, that we are kind of stepping in and, and making that go a lot faster. Got it. Wow. Okay. And then you guys are bringing chat to this, to this world and you call it TXP chat. Yeah. Right. For, for those familiar with Slack, it's kind of the vision is Slack for donation and transplant on that side. You know, how can we bring in the right information, make information accessible and, um, and, and be able to coordinate and communicate uh, across that entire supply chain on yeah. that, on that end. That and, makes sense. Um, and then we, we throw in pretty specific and features really valuable to transplant as well. And then powerful integration. So just like Slack integrates to drive and Dropbox, and that's what makes it so valuable in your workflows. We try to do the same thing. What are other tools in their workflows that are really important to them? And let's integrate those in. Yeah. There's a lot of industries where chat and you know integrating different applications and platforms together are really causing some disruptions, you know, because the the communication channels that have been used in the past have been brought to the you know today's age and it just doesn't match the way people want to communicate anymore. So you know I can see the healthcare space along with several others that I've that I've seen chat you know, speeds up those workflows. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. We're all a bunch of humans trying to work together and communication is how we time to response. You know, email, it's hard to, you know, respond back and forth quickly. You don't have, you know, a really great feed to see past communication uh, in a really intuitive way. So chat, you know, makes sense in this, in this situation. One of the things that I was, you know, researching about you guys before we got on here that I was just, um, you know, it's always special to have a personal connection to the problem you guys are solving and have a big purpose. So walk through your all's personal connection to this. Uh, Cause I think both of you have really great connections. Either one of you can take that. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I have quite a few, um, family members that are really close to the donation transplant side, um, in need or, um, or have, have been deceased and, and have the opportunity to donate. Um, when I looked at the data from like an analytics perspective and saw the discrepancy between how many organs were authorized versus successfully transplanted and started to dig into decline reasons or declination reasons um, for, for the organs. Um, and then a lot of interesting papers that were uh, extremely popular in the industry pointing out these failures. This is not something that the organ transplant community doesn't know about. Um, It's something that they're ready to address. Uh, As soon as that kind of need was apparent in the industry and and sort of um, self-realized, there was definitely an opportunity there to to help out. Uh, Not only the people that are there sacrificing every day, making uh, making transplant happen, because it's really difficult to do. Everybody involved in that process is is um is extremely valuable and and they sacrifice a lot to be on call for 72 yeah. hours straight things like that to make these happen um but then also increase the accessibility to um people that are potentially listed but not transplant ready um or the many 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 more and we're talking about over 600,000 people with end stage renal disease that may be candidates uh, you quoted earlier correctly that about 100,000 people are actually listed for transplant, but the benefit of transplant goes beyond um, a lot of that. 
Um, so it's a, it's transformational what it can yeah. do to somebody's life. And if there were organs, perfectly good organs and matched organs growing on trees, we could, um, we could prevent one third of deaths in the U S period. Wow. Um, that's crazy. So a lot of those, a lot of those internal barriers to transplant are just c kind of supply driven and readiness driven. Um, and we address both of those, um, with our company and both of those things, um, pertaining to my own personal connection with my family, um, would really help, help me out. And then also when you, when you think about other people in your life that have had organ failure, they may not have been listed on the transplant list. Um, but again, that's only available to the, to the very, um, very lucky few. And then even when you're listed, it doesn't guarantee that you get a transplant either. So, hmm. um, we yeah. really like to bring this to, to, to a lot of other people. Makes sense. And Dalton, before we get to, to yours, I ra had a random question pop in my head. When there's an, let's say a, an organ in California, but there's a patient that needs it in, let's say Iowa, how does an organ get trans, you know, transport? Are they flying it on planes? How quick are they getting it there? Yeah. The, the short answer is the team that is accepting the organ is in many cases financially and logistically responsible to go get it. So the person in, in, in let's say the team in Iowa mm -hmm. would be responsible for, for working with the local organ procurement organization in California okay. to get the organ. Now kidneys is different because they have pumps now and they put the kidney on the pump. And a lot of times the people coming in to procure the liver will go ahead and procure the kidneys and send them to Iowa on an existing flight or, you know, um, a, a charter that Iowa has set up. But um, for all other organs, yeah, they're sending an entire surgical team from Iowa to California to procure. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Dalton, go ahead and get into your yeah, personal so, story there. Um, was, went to fulfilling the, the childhood dream of playing football at Iowa and uh, was kind of liking it. It was really hard. I realized I was sacrificing a lot, both with family relationships, personal relationships, um, you know, school to be the best in my sport and uh, my position. <clears throat> sunken fallacy, you know, kind of, or sunken cost fallacy was definitely playing uh, an impact in my decision to continue to do it. I don't think I would have ever gotten out of football unless I had been forced out. Um, and uh, uh, luckily I was forced out with an accident that ended my football career. Uh, one of the uh, injuries was a paralyzed right arm, and I had a, a nerve transplant to recover my arm. And that inspired kind of the, the idea that tissue could be reconfigured and reused. Um, and so I started looking into the tissue market, actually, and I had learned that my uncle, who is a congenital heart surgeon, did pediatric heart transplant. And so we were talking about just the whole tissue side. And obviously he started talking a lot about organ transplant and, uh, we got to talking more and he showed me an organ offer uh, and a conversation that he was having for, um, a, a pediatric heart transplant in iMessage. And, um, I thought that was really odd. And so I started learning more about it. And as he mentioned the complexity and how all that complexity basically falls on the burden of the, as Eric mentioned earlier, the incredibly passionate people in this industry that stay up all night to get it done. I was like, wow, there, this could be done a lot easier with some t 
technology. Um, I didn't have a technology background. Fortunately, I met Eric. I kind of soft pitched the idea originally when I was talking to him about uh, actually nerve um, repurposing and have better diagnostics with nerve injury and um, and then being able to do you know better and more successful transplant surgeries to make my situation happen faster. I waited a year um, to, you know, with a paralyzed arm, uh, trying to decide if it was going to come back on its own or not. And uh, they open up my arm and they're like, oh yeah, it would have never came back. It was, it was really bad. Uh, you've just kind of by waiting has just lost, you know, permanently 20% um, of your deltoid. Um, if we would have hap- worked faster, maybe more of that would have been saved. I, I'm still really fortunate because I can, I mean, if I didn't have my shirt off, you wouldn't be able to tell there's anything wrong. Um, and so anyway, I kind of pitched that idea and then concurrent to that, I had this conversation with my uncle and I was like, Hey, my uncle needs an app to look at organ offers. And that's what started a, a kind of a, uh, whoa, this is interesting. And then as he said, he started reading the papers and was like, wow, this, this problem is known and large. And, um, a couple lucky of events later, we were in front of the right people at the right time and they were willing and gracious enough to help us out and fast track our learning process in the industry and, and get an MVP out to market. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important things when starting a company is having that connected purpose for what you guys are solving. Cause there's plenty of people out there solving problems, but it's all about, I think the ones that come out ahead are the ones that actually really resonate for sure. with the problem they're solving. So let's quickly, I just want to kind of go through a few questions here before we get into your all's major learning, which is really about the human side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about, Funding. How, how have you guys been able to sustain yourselves and grow the team to this point with capital? Yeah, I think uh, we've been lucky because we've found um, a CFO that does a really good job at fundraising. Um, it's a lot of work to yeah. fundraise. I think the biggest success where I noticed the difference between, and it also kind of sets the tone as well in terms of commitment, is when founders invest. You know, mm-hmm. so Eric and I. We, still remember in the bell going like, all right, are we going to do this thing? All right. How much money do you have? Uh, you know, and I was able to scratch up anything and everything I could get. And Eric matched it. And that was kind of the beginning of like, okay, we're serious. And, and I think that kind of first founders in skin, big skin in the game. Yeah. And, and even when you're going out to other investors, you know, and they see that, okay, you put some money in then Eric and eventually, you know, my family caught up to a little bit less, uh, maybe more risk adverse or um, whatever, but uh, Eric did a, did a nice job. We, our families are incredibly grateful for our families that came up and showed up and supported us with this, uh, this uh, vision and, um, you know, was able to give us a little bit more. And then we took advantage of local state uh, opportunities in Iowa uh, to get, you know, uh, kind of our, our, uh, some, it's a, basically some grant dollars, some free grant dollars, did the road show with pitch competitions and kind of got dollars here and there um, to the point where we had kind of enough that, uh, and then I think the big one was the NIH grant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mm-hmm. NIH SBR phase one, 250,000, that was another kickstarting event. And, um, you know, we, I think we pulled probably, you know, at right, right from the get go, you know, probably if you include the, 250,000 close to, you know, 400, 500,000 of, you know, family and state grant loan, you know, Blue Cross Blue Blue Shield gave us some money um, with Wellmark, um, the state of Iowa, you know, we kind of used those resources to get rolling. And I think when you're coming to investors, 
with that kind of non-dilutive capital that you've been able to generate as well as founders and family have, have, have put in. It makes yeah. the fundraising process a lot easier to get started. You said that was right as you guys were getting rolling. Where was the product at that time? Was it MVP stage? Was it pre-product? Yeah. What, what were you guys able to show people to yeah, get Eric them to you know, give you money? Yeah, we, I mean, we really did start with a PowerPoint pitch deck. Um, we took it to the University of Iowa and the Iowa Donor Network, which is the local organ procurement organization. There's probably about one per state, like Dalton was saying, um, and got those uh, kind of wireframes uh, validated. Um, we we leveraged a $25,000 proof of commercialization uh, grant from Iowa, the state of Iowa, and that needed to be matched by uh, investment. Uh, and that was the, the match that Dalton and I originally fronted for that. So we had um, beginning $50,000 to kind of get the right conversations with people, the wireframes built, um, many iterations of high fidelity wireframes as well. Um, I'm not sure if that's the technical term, but basically a workflow that's all connected together and you can show it off on the application. It's, it's a vaporware, yeah, yeah. it's fake software. Um, at that point in time, we um, contacted as as soon as we got the next kind of like tranche of financing um, from Dalton, affectionately refers to our family, which is true. But now we refer to everybody in our seed round as pretty much our family. <laughs> yeah. um, there are people from many of them from Iowa that are non traditional like investors, um, but they you know might give a lot of money to the University of Iowa. Um, and uh, they saw what we were doing because the university helped us kind of get in front of these people that are their donors. Um, but they don't do venture capital for, you know, you know, a living or anything like that. They're just um, high net worth individuals. Um, and since then, you know, after three years of working with them and they're continuing to, you know, fund each and every round as we continue, they definitely are family at this point. Yeah, um, sure. So there's a large group of those people. Um, we, co we contracted a software development firm after the next tranche of financing that actually put the wireframes into production um, and also navigated uh, like uh, HIPAA compliance and all of the security, um, technical, administrative, and physical safeguards we needed in order to have a live software in a clinical environment, which is non-trivial. And um, we could have an entire podcast about that. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's one of the things, if they want to reach out to if any other founders are going through that they can reach out to Dalton or I about our story specifically on navigating um the administration stuff that you need to do for that um we we have a lot of learnings from that area. yeah cool yeah that's mm -hmm. awesome great offer there I'm not sure we have I know we have several listeners that are starting you know medical technology companies I think of mm -hmm. you know SnapTech yeah. um group and, and several others in town that we've talked to um they're doing exciting things um quickly revenue model how do you guys make money yeah, well, we, um, <clears throat> good question. There's, it's complicated, you know, yeah. in healthcare, the healthcare um, revenue cycle and just purchasing process for hospitals is just different than any other market where you don't have a clear, a consumer with a clear price with a clear, I mean, it, 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 there's this interesting thing called insurance and payers that, that just complicate everything. <clears throat> but, I would say that uh, we are um, increasing number of transplants and we're saving a ton of time doing it. So we have a kind of a cost avoidance with HIPAA compliance, a cost savings 
a value proposition in terms of streamlining operations that save dollars downstream and then increasing number of transplants, which it does have a financial impact to our customers that they're interested in. Um, we uh, uh, also realized that we have you know, claim data that we're collecting potentially in our application that could be uh, exported and actually billed for as well. So that's a, kind of a direct impact on our customers' revenue. Um, and, uh, and we, and we bill a, a portion or a, a percentage of that. It, right now it's our, our entry level product is a, is a typical SaaS model. Uh, hospitals tend to like to pay for it all up front, um, and, uh, and do it annually. So that's what we, that's what we do. Yeah. You guys have had, I think I saw somewhere a number, I'm sure this has changed, um, 50 organ matches. Is that right? Did yeah, I well, somewhere? Five, yeah, over 500. I okay, think so that was an early is, number then. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> we're not necessarily um, – what we're, what we're saying there is uh, offers have been facilitated okay. through the application. Got it. Um, so, yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of cool, especially when uh, our first three customers were in Iowa. And, you know, we'd hear family members talk about, oh, so-and-so just got a transplant. And we'd know that we probably had a touch point there. That's brings amazing. it home. It's pretty cool. For sure. So, you know, before you guys got on here, we wanted to ask you guys your major learnings because we always want, you know, our listeners to come away with something and apply to their own, you know, ventures. Mm-hmm. And you guys had a few points, but I noticed that a couple of them had the human-centric, um, you know, emotional intelligence side of things when mm-hmm. it comes to building a team and approaching investment and, you know, approaching just how you build the company as a whole. Mm-hmm. So talk about how you learn that um, and how you're applying that with OmniLife. Sure. Um- get started yeah. i i'd say that first and just full disclosure i think i'm still learning right i think yeah. we are constantly learning and i think that's important um and you mentioned i i sent some things i haven't had an opportunity to see what eric had sent yet but um there is relationships and and um kind of the human components of working together with a group of people that shine through and in every single thing. Um, and I think one of the things about learning and being, um, humble in that is I used to think I, my emotional intelligence and acuity was fairly high and I realized that it's not, you know, and, uh, that I think I know what people want, but really you had to take time to listen, um, and have empathy and try to figure out the perspective that that individual is coming in yeah. into the meeting or into the, into the conversation or, and what their perspective is. Um, one, I, one point you yeah. made was, you know, don't overthink things. Don't overthink things too much because at yeah. the end of the day, everybody's human. Yeah. And everybody's going to have, bring different things to the table. Uh, it's all going to pass. You know, you can push back deadlines, but at the end of the day, that human connection with people is going to, what's, what's going to be, you know, lasting. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot in there of don't overthink it. Um, you can kind of go the route of, and there's a book called the surrender experiment that was pretty powerful to me as a founder. It was, um, about a uh, a founder that kind of accidentally stumbled upon one of the biggest med tech companies um, histor- that there has been, and and kind of sold that and had a tr- ton of success, but kind of did it in a in a way of he basically had a surrender experiment to just surrender to kind of life, and it was kind of a a more business version of the movie Yes Man, I think is what it's called. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and you know it created great things, um, and he realized that what he was doing by surrendering was just talking less, turning mm-hmm. the inner chatter that wants to kind of protect your ego yep. off and listening more and, uh, and, and trusting more and, yep. and it created a great thing. So that was a powerful 
thing for me was kind of the surrender experiment. But then, but then the other part of it too, I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's uh, a couple mental models that I think are pretty powerful. And I, and I think anybody making decisions with a group of people, um, it's, it's really complicated. It seems at first, there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, mental models, uh, kind of distilling down to the core fundamentals of what we're doing. Um, and what we're talking about and understanding some of the psychology behind how we make decisions and how we work together as people helps navigate some of those conversations. Yeah. And, you know, those are things that people aren't necessarily taught, right? You said you had done research and read books and, you know, people go all the way through college and they're thrown into the real world, real world. And, you know, they don't have that side of that side of, you know, their knowledge, um, what's your advice to people on, you know, learning those kind of things beyond, you know, you said you read some books, yeah. but is it just pure experience? Is that what you found is just more you interact with people, the more you learn that stuff, or is there a way to, to, to learn these things before you get out in the real world and are forced to learn it? Right. It's a tough question because everybody's faced with it. And yeah. I think everybody needs to kind of think through what that looks like. I think experience plus reflection. Yeah. Experience alone though. You know, if you're just going to experience things, but you're not taking time to learn from it, then you're not going to move forward. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, experiencing things and uh, and doing some education and having the mental model toolkit available to make sense of things. Um, but that's, again, really hard to do real time unless you're a mental model expert, which I'm not. You know, yeah. if you have like a, oh, I, and you can recognize it in real time, that's very difficult. At first, it's just experiencing doing the best of your ability to to, to make a decision and, and, and move forward and then reflection and say, okay, what, what ended up happening? Um, uh, so a couple suggestions, the decision journal, there's a lot of examples online, um, hard to do, but if you can form the habit of, of doing it, it's really powerful. Uh, the knowledge project is a podcast that I listen to a lot. Mm -hmm. Shane Parrish, he actually wrote a book, um, that has 10 of the, he, he has basically, he's creating volumes of mental models. Um, inspired by um, the the great Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's business partner, and he writes a he has a great material out as well on on different mental models. So Charlie Munger, uh, Shane Parrish does a good job, and the Knowledge Project of um, and his uh, he he's got this great email that he sends every Sunday called uh, Brain Food, um, worth subscribing to, <laughs> and uh, he's got a I'm blanking on the name of his website. I can only think of Knowledge Project and Shane Parrish, but he's got a he's got a website that has basically all the content, all these different mental models from all these different um, kind of original thinkers uh, in one place, which yeah. makes it a really easy to start learning it faster. When you said reflection, I also think self awareness, because I think it's important to understand who you are and think about the way you make decisions. You know, the decision journal, but I think a lot of that comes to self awareness because when you know yourself better. You're able to communicate with other people, be more confident in how you communicate with people and listen. Yeah. You know, because your ego, if you understand yourself and your ego is not so big and you understand what you're good at and what you're not good at, you're going to listen more, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's a big part. When and you said reflection, I thought of that. We're all trying to do that, too. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, and, and we're all doing it through our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, we're constantly trying to figure out who who um, we, we're, we're learning all the time. And so we're constantly evolving and changing. and. Um, you know, you see that in the team and the company too, as we continue to grow, you know, um, it's constantly figuring out, I call it the genius zone, you know, where, where are people wanting to, to work, helping people find that sweet spot where they're really good. 
and then and, and then uh, removing barriers to let them do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You answered my next question, which was, uh, you know, applying this human part to a company usually is HR and hiring, right, and building a team. Yeah. And you just mentioned, you know, some a couple of things that you do to help, you know, the team be successful. But when you're looking for people and you're finding the right match to bring onto the team, how have you guys used your learnings as far as you know, the human side of things to find the right, right people to join. That's a hard question. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's a science or it's more of an art uh, yeah. getting the right people. Uh, within network, I've seen make a big difference. So if you can do that, that Build does. Build a network. Yeah. yeah. But we've hired a couple sales reps that were completely a traditional recruit. You know, they, that have turned out great so far too. So cool. I don't know. I, that's kind of an art. I, I think the I think w one of the things that we've been most successful in is creating an, a a culture that attracts. So I mean, if you're f focused on a social cause uh, and you stay true to that social cause, um, it tends to attract the right people. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. You know, when I do research and I study some of these entrepreneurs, the thing they say is, you know, build the culture and the culture will attract. Yeah. Because you can have a great idea, you can have a great company, but if the culture isn't there. It's going to be hard to recruit. And then once you get people there, it's hard for them to stay. Um, so the, the culture piece you just mentioned makes a ton of sense and is very important. So the last part of this, we really want to focus on you know Lexington. You guys did not start the company here, right? You guys started kind of in Iowa in college. Um, talk about how your journey has been getting to Lexington and why you're here now. I guess I'll kick this off. Um, my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now fiancé, is from Lexington. And we had been kind of dating long distance since kind of the, the first round of financing for the business. It's been like three years. Um, also the kind of the entirety of the business too. So that's interesting to think about yeah, because yeah. I feel like they were like two separate yeah. timelines, but they were actually very close uh, yeah. together. So um, yeah, she could probably, or our respective significant others could probably write books on us kind of going through this process. Sure. Um, but anyway, she's uh, she's here in Lexington, and uh, we wanted to go to the next kind of step in our relationship. And part of that was um, a commitment uh, to for like a full-time presence, particularly. We were on the, we like to call like the monthly subscription plan <laughs> uh, for long distance. We'd see each other once a month and we'd trade off weekends where we go from Iowa city to Lexington or Lexington to Iowa city. Um, so I have been to Lexington a bunch over the last three years. Um, really like the city. And I talked to Dalton and, and some of the, some of the other directors at the company. I said, Hey guys, I'm, you know, I'm going to move down, you know, to Lexington. That's a <laughs> commitment that I've made. And, um, we're, you know, we're going to figure out what, you know, what happens when we do that. Um, it turns out Lexington's a wonderful place to get connected, to start a business. Uh, one of the first things that we had, you know, when at first I kind of moved here and we kind of remoted um, a little bit. And at the time we also had um, engineering people and other people from the University of Iowa that were graduating and wanted to go to their respective cities. Um, of choice, some of them in Kansas City, Seattle, um, Minneapolis, Chicago. Um, so we did have a sort of a, an exodus, um, yeah. and uh, and and at that point in time, I chose Lexington. And when, when we came here, we very very quickly got plugged into everybody in the community um, that have helped us kind of establish um, the company as a Kentucky base and 
a few of the reasons we did that were um, a lot of tremendous support from the state programs, uh, the University of Kentucky, um, the leaders of the Lexington culture, which are the awesome Inc. folks here, and uh, getting us plugged in to that, the uh, Kentucky Entrepreneurial Hall of Fame, um, the Kentucky Entrepreneurial Hall of Fame uh, Fellowship Program as well welcomed us in this last um, spring, and and that has totally helped us get connected. We raised our um, most recent round. I guess it was a, a seed two or a series A. It was kind of a, a bridge to series A, um, but that was led by Bluegrass Angels. And being people from out of town uh, to come here, establish our company here, and get that much support from kind of you know local who you know type of networks just shows how welcoming the community here is in Lexington um, to accept kind of like yeah told like we didn't you know other than that it's not like we've been doing business in Lexington for a decade before we moved here yeah um, so that that's a huge testament to to the community here for sure to, to kind of tie all that together about the community and the commitment and your fiance and all this I want, I want you to tell the story about when we went to summer retreat and then we get back and like instantly you would send a Slack message like, Hey, just proposed to my fiance. Was that because oh, of like a, of yeah. a, of a, a talk that you heard at the summer retreat? How did that go down? Um, they weren't, um, they weren't that closely tied to be honest. Cause I had, um, purchased the engagement ring months before. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, the impetus behind the urgency, uh, definitely came, um, from that retreat. Uh, the awesome Inc. retreat was, was, uh, was amazing because they invited, well, the entire awesome Inc. team was there. We were in B spring, Kentucky, um, by mammoth cave area, uh, gorgeous, uh, Lake Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually had one of my uh, team members come down, uh, to, uh, to join and like learn more about the community here. There were entrepreneurs from Louisville there. Um, some colleagues obviously, uh, from Lexington as well that were other entrepreneurs, um, and we just got to spend enough time with each other that was beyond a normal networking event. And it was more like, let's get into the real meat. Uh, when you spend a little bit longer uh, with people, you know, kind of the truth comes out. Not really that anybody's, um, you know, not everybody's honest, of course, uh, even in the initial meeting. But you kind of like get to understand. Get barriers the, down. Yeah. The entrepreneurs the are real optimists. Meat. Yeah. Everybody's an optimist. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> So when we kind of got into like, uh, you know, real challenges and real, um, real talk, we developed, you know, a real relationship and that's, that's how they're built upon. And, um, one of the closing or one, uh, one conversation I had with, uh, with Nick such, and I, I believe he also came up and, and told the whole community about, um, the concept of, uh, go big Fridays and just, um, to stop kind of like overanalyzing things and actually go for something that's just a wild and crazy thing. Like that's not going to, not going to work. Definitely not going to work, but just, just try something big every week. And that's something that everybody here at awesome Inc. does. Um, and that's definitely the culture they had at the, um, well here that I'm, that I'm with every day, but then also at the, at the retreat, um, where like, it's okay to fail. It, like try now. Cause you can wait another 30 years. And you'll never necessarily be ready. Or never mm-hmm. feel that you're ready, um, and uh, definitely coming out of that, I went, I went back and and proposed to Amanda in like record time. <laughs> like it was like within That's three awesome. hours of getting back to Lexington, I was like, you know what, 
<laughs> I can great. I can wait another month. I can wait another six months, or you know we can make the commitment now, and it's and, that's awesome. and I'm ready for it. So yeah, let's, congrats. Let's make it happen. So that's cool. That's a good, yeah. that's a good story for sure. Uh, so two questions I always like to ask at the end, and you kind of already touched on what is great about Lexington, what you've noticed so far, and multiple multiple guests have said that, which is the community and the welcomeness and, you know, to put a, like a, a name on it, I'd say it's Southern hospitality, mm-hmm. yeah. which is just like being able to just welcome somebody and talk to them like a normal person and, and give them what they might need as gifts or as advice, whatever it might be. Um, so that's great. We've heard that multiple times. What about, what have you noticed that could improve? You guys maybe haven't been here long enough, but have you picked out anything in the community that you could say, man, I wish Lexington had this, or, um, you know, I, I think that it could do better over here it's tough. i have two things sure. there's yeah. sort of recency bias okay i've been hit by a car twice and, <laughs> um, i actually commuting. know it, yeah i actually know several people that have been hit by cars uh with the right of way in the bike yeah, lane yeah you know if there's a just a big like advocacy we could do for more bicycle commuters because in general i don't honestly blame the cars too much because there's not a lot of bike yeah. traffic oh you're gonna hit on a bike not walking or you're oh, walking geez. no are you gonna hit on, on a, a bike okay all right wow, but that's... walking that's another situation yeah, okay. we should talk about too. yeah no i have a couple i've got some friends who got hit walking but go ahead keep um but i think with more bicyclists on the road you create the the awareness that yeah. hey you know just because there's like a painted line you know, there are people occupying this lane, that sort of thing. So um, I, I love the ability to bike to work because it's a great alternative to, to driving. Uh, it's cheaper. It's better for the environment, blah, blah, blah. You go on and on about that. But if we can make it safer, um, that would be a big, yeah. like, okay. win for Lexington. And I think a lot of that comes with just more people occupying the roadways because the yeah, roadways yeah. are properly marked. Yep. Uh, the city's done a lot of um, investment in the infrastructure, painting the lines, stuff like that. Does scooters help at all? Um, I, yeah, I don't do mind. Use, uh, do people use like the bike lanes with the scooters? I've maybe used it once or twice, but they do. That helps the sidewalk, more, right? more presence in that lane yeah. definitely helps. Um, I wish we didn't have to, you know, risk our lives in order to create yeah. that presence. Um, but <laughs> well, as always the first few that go on the journey. It's like right? the martyrs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, so that, and then, uh, the most recent in mind is just the, uh, the Kentucky SBIR match fund. Um, has been kind of suspended at the moment. Um, we received a SBIR Phase Two um, grant, which is a two million dollar grant, uh, which would be up for that match from the state of Kentucky, being a Kentucky-based company. Uh, I think that matching program is tremendous about bringing organizations that have received the um, SBIR financing from, like the NSF or NIH or NCI. Uh, DOD, those people with those contracts, those grant money, um, if they can get a portion of that matched by the state to move here, um, I think that's a huge pull um, for companies. And having that be suspended is, um, I think it has to do with some of the government or the 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 government governor's office turning over this last election season. Um, that all programs are sort of suspended, but that particular program is is of concern to the startup community. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, for us, that's that's like a million dollars at stake um, of of financing for our company with that with that match. So um, that's something that that's a uh, that's more recent. Uh, well said. Yeah, got it. And the last question we'd like to ask is, you know, where are you guys heading 
as far as into the future? Give us your vision statement that I'm sure you give investors. Sure. So the company is trying to maximize the number of transplants and save as many lives as possible. And, uh, you know, I think we always talk about what we've created here is become an entity and its own organism that is going to be successful and, and it's going to make a, a huge impact on the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And we just truly believe that because the company is achieving such a uh, noble um, goal that our primary job as as employees of the company is to help and guide and nurture something that's already on its on its way to success instead of trying to figure out how to you know push or jam this thing to to make it successful i think what we're doing now is is really we all have the kind of the mental model that this thing is on its way to success it's inevitable um and we've been called to action to help it make sure that it gets to the to, to the final place by nurturing it along the way so you know i think the the vision for our company is you know um that we tell everybody it's like it's it's gonna be successful um uh, you know, and, and we try to um, uh, employ and and challenge everybody to figure out ways that we can all nurture it and help it get to um, the where it wants to go because it'll save so many lives.